Welcome to The Mind Renewed. They're so worried that they've got to take over down here the direction of where it's going and get a one world system together, get rid of nationalities, and get one government, one religion, so we won't have war. That's the effort of man to bring about his own salvation. Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles again of the MindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very, very pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Martin Eldman. And for those of you who don't know, Dr. Eldman was most currently the Professor of Philosophy at North Greenville University and Director of the Verex Institute in Greer, South Carolina. He has served as Head of New Testament Studies at the State Independent Seminary in Basel, Switzerland, and the Academy of Reformation Theology in Hanover, Germany. He also taught all courses in Biblical Studies at Patrick Henry College in North Virginia, and was for several years Senior Scientist at the University Hospital in Basel and Research Fellow at the European Foundation of Clinical Nanomedicine, researching into the ethical implications of nanotechnology. Dr. Erdmann, thank you ever so much for coming back to speak to us again. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be on your show. Thank you. And I know that you've returned quite recently from a very extensive and exhausting preaching and teaching tour across Europe. So it's great that you've come on so quickly to speak to us again. But how did that tour go? Could you give us just a brief idea of uh, what you were talking about and how it was received? Yes, indeed. I spent six weeks in Germany, Switzerland and Austria to conduct a speaking tour, as you already noted. And it was a very good tour. I was very pleased with the outcome. It was very exhausting, as you probably uh, could imagine. I was at a different place on average every second day for six weeks in three different countries. I had to deal with quite uh, some distinct cultures, even though I only stayed in the German-speaking region. But if you cross over to Switzerland or from Switzerland to Austria, you know that the people are quite distinct from each other. And I had to deal with quite a number of different dialects. And I'm used to some Swiss dialects because I lived in Switzerland for nearly six years. I worked in Basel for five years at the university hospital. So I got quite used to the Swiss dialect in Basel. But when obviously I had to give uh, different presentations in different other cantons, and the dialect is totally different. <laughs> ah, quite challenging, yes. Yeah, so I was asked a few questions after my presentation, and I didn't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> but the person asking the question was kind enough to repeat his questions in high German, and I did understand it and, and could answer them. I hope that people did understand generally what you were talking about. So what was the subject that you were talking about? Well, each uh, presentation was a bit different. The general topics were technocracy, as a matter of fact, sometimes, sometimes dominionism, the topic which we talked about in our last interview, but I also preached. I just expounded uh, some scripture passages, mm -hmm. gave a, a Bible study at different other places. So it was quite diverse. Yeah, and you were plagued by the weather, I understand, throughout your stay. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was just horrible. <laughs> just, <Yeah. laughs> that, that's the only word to use. It, it rained for six weeks straight. And no matter which country I was in, it, it seemed like the rain clouds just followed me. 
As a matter of fact, I'm back in the United States now and have been for two weeks. And my wife is blaming me for bringing the rain clouds to the United States <laughs> because it has rained about two weeks straight here in, in South Carolina, which is very unusual too. So basically, I have not seen many sunny days for the last two months. <laughs> <laughs> Poor you. Well, I can tell you it's very sunny here, so you haven't had any effect during this interview so far. <laughs> now, uh, you, you brought up the subject there of technocracy, which, of course, is the subject that I'd like to ask you about today. And yes. um, also about uh, one of the ways, indeed, that I, I think perhaps one of the most in insidious ways that this vision of technocracy is being realized in the modern world, and that's through the construction of the smart grid. So I'd like to ask you about those two aspects. So first, could you explain to us what technocracy actually is, what the word means and what its ideals were when it was first set up? Yes, well, technocracy is a term which is actually a very old term. But in my experience, when I use the term technocracy, most people don't really understand what it means. They have some inklings or some notion that it has to do with technology, but they don't necessarily understand the term in its essence. Mm. But it is also always very important to define the term before I go into my presentation. Now, technocracy is really a form of government in which experts in technology would be in control of all decision-making. This is the essence of technocracy. It's a form of government. And those in power are not necessarily the politicians, but scientists, engineers, and technologists who have knowledge, experience, expertise, and skills, and they would compose the governing body of a nation. It would not be the politicians, businessmen, or economists. In a technocracy, decision makers would be selected based upon how knowledgeable and skillful they are in their field not based on different political persuasions and such. And would you say that George Orwell's 1984 was inspired by these ideas or warning about these ideas? Yes, I could most certainly affirm that George Orwell was very knowledgeable about the mechanisms, the political mechanisms of technocracy. As a matter of fact, uh, having worked in the Secret Service during the Second World War, and being trained as someone who would more or less perform different functions within a technocracy, if a technocracy would have been in existence at that time, he was very well-versed and very knowledgeable in regards to the mechanisms and dynamics of a technocracy. And he was very frightened or very concerned about the imposition of a technocracy. And I believe this motivated him to write his novel, 1984. And the technocratic vision, I understand, is a collectivist vision, but it's not. I mean, Patrick Wood says, and let me quote from him, he says, the dark horse of the New World Order is not communism, socialism, or fascism. It is technocracy. And he very clearly places that term technocracy in with a lot of other manifestations of collectivism. But he says it's not those, it's something different. So how is it essentially different from those other forms of collectivism? Yes, well, it is a form of collectivism, of totalitarianism. It is a dictatorship. There are plenty of common points or commonalities in regards to these different totalitarian systems, but there are key differences. 
I think the key difference between any other totalitarian system of the past or even of the present as compared to technocracy is the specific economic system which underlies these different political systems. In regards to, let's say, communism or fascism, the economic system underlying that particular system is a price-based mm. economic system, whereas in technocracy, it is a energy-based economic system. And this is the key difference. And technocracy has never been implemented anywhere in the world. It's still something which could be imposed in the future. And I'm of the opinion that the current political parties in the United States, as well as in different other European countries, the European Union, are very eager to implement the key elements of technocracy in their respective regions. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to ask about where the movement technocracy actually started and when it began, because I understand that it began in the 1930s in the US with Howard Scott and uh, M. King Hubbard, who again, I understand, proposed the peak oil theory. But could you take us back further to its philosophical roots and I think you brought up some of these thinkers in, the, in our last interview, people like Henri Saint-Simon and Auguste Comte. Could you take us back to the influence of those individuals and then explain to us how their thought influenced the beginnings of technocracy in the 1930s? As you noted, the two founders of technocracy are French philosophers. One was Henri Saint-Simon, and he lived in the years 1760 to 1825, and Auguste Kant, 1798 to 1857. Auguste Kant was originally the private secretary of Saint-Simon. Saint-Simon was a very wealthy individual at that time because he profited from the sale of real estate after the French Revolution. He was a speculator and became very wealthy. And when he had leisure to devote himself to thinking about the ideal society, he wrote a number of books, a number of pamphlets, which were then distributed in France at the time. And this was right after the French Revolution. And he, as I said, wanted to come up with a system or a scheme to create a perfect society. He was very concerned or very frightened by the chaos which was engendered by the French Revolution, especially during the reign of terror. As a matter of fact, at one time he was even imprisoned and was slated to be beheaded by the guillotine, as many of his countrymen were at the time. He escaped that fate, he was released and then obviously benefited greatly from the sale of church property, which was confiscated by the revolutionaries, became wealthy, and then wanted to come up with a perfect scheme for a society. This was the beginning of what we know now as technocracy. And his ideas were, I understand, very, very positivistic. Well, he was an atheist in his personal religious persuasion, as well as Auguste Kant's. But Auguste Kant, later on, split off from Saint-Simon, set up his own following, and came up with his own philosophy. And that particular philosophy was called positivism. As a matter of fact, he himself came up with that term for his own philosophy. 
But what Auguste Kant did was he did more or less just refine and expand the philosophy of Saint-Simon. Uh-huh. It was just a further development of a philosophy which he had become acquainted of while he was working for Saint-Simon. And yes, in, in a general sense, you can call it positivism. But you also have to keep in mind that positivism, even though it is exclusively concerned about matters in this world, it has totally abandoned any notion of uh, beyond, of any metaphysical understanding of a world. It is a very materialistic worldview which positivists embrace. However, we also know that August Kant looked at his own philosophy as a religion. As a matter of fact, he called it the religion of humanity. And he himself viewed his role within that religion as being the high priest of a religion of humanity. So in essence, it is a philosophy, but it is far more characterized or defined by a religious worldview, which is not Christianity, but it's still a religious worldview nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And if he was the high priest of this religion, he wasn't uh, mediating the spirit of or the presence of God, then presumably he was mediating an idea, an intellectual idea. Was this his thought? Yes, positivism elevated science and the scientific method above metaphysical revelation or the idea of a God. Yes, he didn't incorporate the idea of God within his philosophy or his religion. That is correct. But he also was very keenly aware of the fact that his philosophy would never be accepted by a large number of individuals unless it would be a a religion. This is actually quite ironic because Saint-Simon in his later years, especially in the year of his death, 1825, came out with his last book, which he entitled New Christianity. And that idea of using a philosophy as a religion in order to gain followers, in order to gain a large mass of individuals embracing that idea, was actually the idea of Saint-Simon. And once he expressed that idea explicitly, Auguste Kant was so disgusted that Saint-Simon brought in religious thinking into his philosophy, that he split off from Saint-Simon and started out on his own. And then later on, this was the essence of what Auguste Kant himself did, (laughs) because he realized the value of using a religion in order to spread his philosophy. Uh, This is very interesting. Do you see uh, an intellectual connection there with Julian Huxley of the humanist frame, who uh, himself said that uh, in order for a new world to be accepted, it would be necessary to have a kind of humanist religion? Yes, it the idea is identical. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I believe that Julian Huxley, as well as his brother, Aldous Huxley, were very strongly influenced by August Kant's positivistic philosophy, which is also religion. So, in essence, I believe there is a direct connection between these different mm-hmm. uh, individuals, even though they are separated in time by 50, 60, 70, almost 100 years. And this is just a a use of religion. It's a a kind of utilitarian or instrumental use of religion just in order to get people to accept this new system. This is absolutely correct. It is totally utilitarian. It is a pragmatic approach to gain a large following. 
and and they, these philosophers realized that only if they call their philosophy a religion would they gain a large following. As a matter of fact, they went even a step further by not just calling it a religion. I'm referring to Sosimor in particular, but calling it the new Christianity. Sosimor was actually energized by the idea of recreating what he thought to be the true Christianity. And if you read through that book, it's a rather thin book. It has, let's say, 60 pages or so, but it has some key ideas in it. And one key idea is the social uplifting of the poor masses of humanity. And obviously that had a, a very strong influence on further developments, especially here in America, in the early part of the 20th century, because that particular idea influenced what became known as the social gospel movement in America. Mm -hmm. And going back to that original new Christianity idea, I'm assuming that that was intellectually, or at least an intellectual justification was sought for that in the alternative lives of Jesus that were going on around that time, I presume, where there was a reinterpretation of the Gospels and taking out the supernatural elements. I would cautiously say that I would agree with you. However, I don't see a necessary direct uh, connection between these authors who wrote biographies of Jesus from a naturalistic, materialistic viewpoint and source him more directly. I don't see that connection. Uh, however, I believe there are similarities. Uh -huh. More of a, an intellectual climate that breeds a similar attitude. That is correct. I would uh -huh. affirm that. I would also point out that Saucy Moore was not necessarily concerned about the original or the historic person of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he saw himself in the role of that new Jesus Christ or that new prophet of God. Yeah, sometimes he even states that God is speaking through my mouth. Listen, you people, and, and he addressed the rulers, the kings and, and potentates of his time especially in regards to the Holy Alliance after the defeat of Napoleon, Metternich, for example, and, and some of the other rulers of his time, which is called the Holy Alliance, he addressed those rulers in such a way that he called himself a prophet of God and they have to listen to him because God is speaking through him. So he was not necessarily concerned about Jesus Christ because he elevated himself into that position of being the modern prophet of God. But the way he used that word was when he says God, he means just reason, presumably. I think you could make that case. However, I don't believe he explicitly states it. Mm -hmm. He was cautious enough to know that the people listening to him would not necessarily agree with him if he would explicitly equate reason with his notion of God. This may have been his own idea, but he was not necessarily telling others that this was his idea. He used the term God quite frequently, but he knew also that the people listening to him were very heavily influenced by the Catholic Church. You have to remember he was a French national, and the Catholic Church still had a very strong hold on the thinking of the people even after the revolution. And so what he had in mind was to recreate the Catholic system of the Middle Ages. So he made reference to the Catholic Church very frequently and held it in high regard, even though he despised it. As a person, he despised the Catholic Church strongly. 
but he made reference, positive reference to the church in order to lure the people who were still very much Catholics at heart into his own system, into his own religion. And he said, well, the ideal future society which he could uh, think of would be a recreation of the Catholic system of the Middle Ages. And what he had in mind was the hierarchical structure, meaning the Pope had full jurisdiction, full power, not only in the spiritual realm, but also in the political realm. And he, he said, well, this, this is the ideal system. It's a, it's a hierarchy. And thus, obviously, we know that technocracy has the meaning of a totalitarian system, a hierarchical system. But he said, instead of a pope, he will put in charge the scientists, the engineers, and then also the bankers. So the people at the top of that hierarchical pyramid would be people who would be in some ways experts in their particular field. He even said, well, bankers can be those who fulfill that role, perhaps the best. As a matter of fact, his immediate followers were bankers or sons of bankers. Saint Simonian philosophy had a very strong hold on the thinking of the banking community in France at the time. And did these ideas directly influence the technocratic movement of the 1930s, or was this something that just happens to be related intellectually? Was it a direct influence? No, it was not a direct influence. I can recount to you how it happened, but I have to just give you the, the highlights. Mm. Well, the philosophy of St. Simon came to Germany and influenced the Hegelians, the left-wing and the right-wing Hegelians, meaning the followers of German philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. So there was a mixture between Hegelian philosophy and the philosophy of St. Simon, which happened in Germany. And that mixture then was imported to different other countries, to England under John Stuart Mill. But it was also imported to the United States almost immediately. As a matter of fact, uh, many of the revolutionaries in the year 1848 who had to flee Germany were strong followers of Hegel and St. Simon. And they came to the United States and brought that particular philosophy to the States. Even earlier, some British pioneers in social theory, like Robert Owen, had a strong impact on the society in America because being an Englishman, he came to the United States and set up his utopian communes and spread the philosophy of socialism in the United States. And we also have to see St. Simon as the founder of socialism. So it's not just technocracy. St. Simon is also viewed in general as the founder of socialism. But what caught the imagination of large portions of the American public was a book which was published in 1888. The author of the book was Edward Bellamy, and the book was entitled Looking Backward. And that book basically encapsulated the entire philosophy of St. Simon. It was a book which we would classify as science fiction nowadays. His main thesis was, well, the main hero of his story fell asleep in the late 19th century and woke up in the year 2000. And then, obviously, knowing how society was at the end of the 19th century 
And when waking up in the year 2000, he was looking backwards of what had happened during these roughly 100 years. And once he woke up in the year 2000, he found himself in the perfect society. And the perfect society was technocracy. I read some papers by Howard Scott. Howard Scott was basically the founder of the technocratic movement in America in the early 1930s. I read some papers uh, written by Howard Scott in which he refers back to Bellamy's book, Looking Backwards. So that is the connection. So we have a direct connection to the founder of Technocracy Inc., Howard Scott and Edward Bellamy. That direction is immediate and direct. But how Bellamy came up with the idea of technocracy is a bit unclear. Could you tell us how M. King Hubbard fits into this picture? Yes, M. King Hubbard was a scientist who basically was the co-founder of that organization, Technocracy Inc. That organization was founded in the year 1932. And the two founders were Howard Scott and M. King Hubbard. M stands for Marion, Marion King Hubbard. Both of them came together in order to promote the ideas and ideals of technocracy. Early on, they had already cooperated in what came to be known as the Technical Alliance Movement in the 1920s, early 1920s. And that Technical Alliance Movement never really caught on. So it was abandoned. And then in the early 1930s, specifically 1932, these two individuals once again came together to set up the organization Technocracy Inc., And this basically was the beginning of the technocracy movement in America, which was a very short-lived movement, as a matter of fact. It only lasted for roughly six months. Really? That short? Yeah. I see. But it it was very successful, wasn't it? I understand that hundreds of thousands of people were taken with the vision. Yes, it was very successful, but it was still a very short-lived movement. Mm. One reason was because FDR, Frederick D. Roosevelt became president in 1933, and his particular policy, the so-called New Deal, was very much similar to technocracy, but it was not as radical. And thus, the masses took up the New Deal policies much more readily than technocracy. They were frightened. Once they were enlightened in regards to the technocratic Mm. policies, they were frightened and, and realized this is way too radical. We are not ready to accept a dictatorship. As a matter of fact, one of the technocrats wrote a book shortly after FDR was voted into office and called on Franklin D. Roosevelt to become a dictator. He said, you are destined to be the dictator of America and we technocrats fully support you. If you want to declare yourself to be dictator of America, you would have our full support. So they were very keen on setting up a totalitarian system even at that early stage. However, as I said, that idea of getting rid of a democracy was too radical for most Americans. And thus they discharged the idea of technocracy. And this more or less was the main reason for the collapse of a technocratic movement. Mm -hmm. Even though it was rather successful initially, but it collapsed ignominiously Uh, in short order. However, we also need to know that it did not totally disappear. It went underground. 
out of that original organization, Technocracy Inc., two different organizations split off due to internal conflicts. We also have to keep in mind that Howard Scott was a very eccentric individual, and he didn't see kindly to anyone opposing him or contradicting his views. And, and this was also one contributing factor why the movement never really caught on as Howard Scott wanted it to. But two organizations split off. One was led by Howard Scott and M. King Hubbard, and the others by people who, whose names are totally forgotten nowadays. Technocracy Inc. even today exists. It does exist as an organization. It's extremely small, but it still exists. It has, it has a website which recounts the history of the technocratic movement and, and publishes some of the, the books which Howard Scott and M. Kim Hargrove wrote, especially the Technocracy Study Course. This is the most important book which came out of that movement, which was published in 1934. Now, I had a look at that, actually. I didn't re- obviously didn't read through the whole thing, but uh, I found it very enlightening to know where they were coming from with this because it's, uh, it's very, very clearly highly utopian. The basic idea is that everything will work best and most efficiently if everything in the society is conformed to natural law so that everything and everybody is in the right place, in the, as, as it were, in the natural place. But it seems to me that this constantly overlooks the fact that, you know, whatever systems are put in place, it's going to be human beings who have to design them and have to administer the system. And as we know, speaking from a, a Christian perspective, or, or I would say just from a realistic perspective, we know that human beings are imperfect. So to my mind, this is the same old problem. It's a utopianism that could never actually work because of the, the problems of human beings. We, we have to have the new man and there's no way you're going to get the new human being into the system. And I'm sure both of us would agree, unless every person in the system comes to faith in Christ, you know. <laughs> but that that's not that doesn't even figure in the system whatsoever. So it seems to me that it is fundamentally flawed just because of that. Exactly. Um, well, I also read the, the book Technocracy Study Course, and the, the proposals are, as you rightly noted, utopian. And if they are utopian, they cannot ultimately be realized. The troubling part of it is that some key politicians, even of our time, are still trying to implement them. And this is the troubling part. So I would agree with you, they will not be implemented as they were thought out to be. However, they will cause great trouble and chaos. Ultimately, like the communist system created a lot of chaos in the societies uh, which adopted that particular political system. So I expect once technocracy will truly take hold in, in the Western world, it will create chaos and it will not bring heaven on earth. This is the last thing which will happen. However, we Christians know that obviously things will have to get worse before Jesus Christ comes back and ultimately Jesus Christ will prevail. This is my hope in regards to the whole scenario. I would uh, be very depressed knowing all the things I know in regards to technocracy if this is all I would know. If I don't have any hope beyond that, I probably would not dare speak out against technocracy at all. But I know that there will be a perfect world society coming once Jesus Christ will return. And this is my hope. I place my hope in Jesus Christ and, and his promises in regards to a future world 
If you read, for example, Second uh, Peter chapter three, there's a clear statement in regards to the future, and it says, well, ultimately, this world will be punished, but Jesus Christ will create a new earth and new heavens in which righteousness will dwell and prevail. Indeed. This is the essence of my hope in regards to the future. However, we still have to deal with the world we, we are living in right now. Yeah. I suppose, really, in a way, I need to correct what I said in some ways, because I said that I thought it was necessary for all people to come to uh, a faith in God in order for the, the new human being to be created so that such a system might work. But to be to be quite honest, I don't really mean that, because I agree with you that salvation is something that is completed when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. And so the idea of setting up a techno or any system it, it, like this is, is necessarily going to be utopian because the new man or the new person will only exist in the new world. <laughs> that is correct. And we also have to keep in mind, even though technocracy could also be called the new Christianity, it is not Christianity at all. Mm. It wants to be put in place of what obviously Christianity promises in regards to the future, but it is not Christianity at all. As a matter of fact, you know that Morsi, the prime minister of Egypt, was just deposed by the military in Egypt. But when he came into power, he publicly declared himself to be a technocrat. And I just read in a German newspaper just maybe four or five days ago, when the Egyptian military deposed him from his position of power, they themselves, the military leaders themselves, wanted to implement a technocratic government in Egypt. Did they use that term themselves? They used the term. I could point you oh. to the particular article in the German newspaper, which is a, a nationwide newspaper. So it's not something which is hidden. They proclaimed themselves to be technocrats, and I mean the, the military. So my point is that system of technocracy can also be implemented in a country or a society which is dominated by Islam. So it, it doesn't need to be a so-called Christian nation like America or Germany. It can also very well function in an Islamic context, Islamic society. This shows me that the so-called new Christianity or technocracy is like a chameleon. It can change colors based upon the environment. Indeed. Looking back to those original technocratic documents that were on that, uh, that are on that website, you're right. They do seem to, well, they do say they have, they're completely indifferent to what religions people follow. Correct. And so they can pose as, as the true Islam, for example, in an Islamic society or the true Christianity in a Christian society or whatever. They can even pose as atheism, for that matter, in a secular society. So it doesn't really matter. It, it can adapt itself, but the essence of technocracy is totalitarianism, and we, we always have to keep this in mind. And there's no way that that could work in reality, and I'm, I'm actually reminded time and again as we're speaking of Karl Popper's work, yes. Utopia, Utopia and Violence, where he yes. points out that any of these kinds of blueprints for a perfect world that are suggested necessarily end up in violence yes. because no, nobody is allowed to think differently. It doesn't allow that. If, if anybody were to think in a different way from this particular system, then it, it couldn't work. And so everybody has to be trodden upon until they submit. Yes. So it is necessarily dictatorial. Exactly. And you know very well that Karl Popper also 
was very opposed to positivism. He opposed positivism as no other philosopher of his time. I believe rightly so. I, I'm very pleased to know that he made such a strong mm. statement in opposition to positivism. He deconstructed it, didn't he, as well? Right, showed yeah. that it was logically inconsistent. That is correct, yeah. Uh, in his book, The Open Society, I believe that, that was the main purpose of showing how inconsistent positivism truly is. And it's not workable. It cannot work. I, I'm not subscribing mm. to Karl Popper's overall philosophy. He was not a Christian, but I do support his effort in deconstructing, as you said, positivism as a unworkable philosophy. Mm. Uh, there's one major element which we haven't really discussed, which we, we did mention towards the beginning of the interview, but I think we need to touch on it in order to understand the major difference between technocracy and other forms of totalitarianism, and that's the idea of an energy-based economy rather than a price-based economy. Could you explain how that was originally conceived to work and why that is such an important difference? Well, in economics, a price-based system is any economic system that affects its distribution of goods and services with prices and employs any form of money. That is the basic definition of a price system. And this is the system uh, we have in place right now and have been in place for centuries, even millennia. However, a energy-based system is quite different. In an energy-based system, Money doesn't play any role anymore. As a matter of fact, all the fiat currencies of the world will be abolished. They will be useless. And the means of payment will be energy units. And they have different names. Technocrats came up with ERGs or jewels, or they came up with different other names. But the basic idea is energy units allocation of a specific energy certificate, which can be used as money. But there are key differences. Nowadays, if you have money, you earn it. And then you can spend your salary any way you want to. You can even save your salary for some later use. It's totally up to you. However, if you get these energy credits as a means of payment, they are allotted to you, meaning you cannot earn them. You cannot go out and do a job and get energy credits in compensation for the work you put into that job. These energy credits are allotted to you, meaning the government gives you X number of energy credits, let's say at the beginning of a month, and then you can use these energy credits to buy the basic means to exist. But at the end of the month, if you have not used up all the energy credits, they just expire meaning they lose their purchasing power by 100%. They become totally useless if you have not spent them up in a specific time period. Thus, you are totally dependent on the government to give you another allotment in the second month and in the third month, and you will not be able to save anything. So savings are outruled under that system. This is the first difference to a price-based economic system. The second difference is that all these energy units are allotted specifically to individuals. Meaning, if I get an energy unit allotment from a government, I cannot give that allotment to anyone else. That allotment is specific in regards to me. This 
basically rules out any any robbery because no one can steal the energy units from me. They are specific in regards to my person. So I can only use my allotment, you can only use your allotment. And if you have to use these up within the month or whatever the time period is, you say, therefore, it's not possible to save anything. Therefore, I presume it's not possible to buy anything of any great substance, for example, a property. So presumably there would be no private property rights because there would be no private property. Exactly. The the notion of private property will be outruled. This is the key notion which technocrats want to get rid of. As I said, they are socialists at heart. The understanding of the notion of having private property is anathema to them. This is the first thing they, they want to get rid of. And this is the means how they do it, by changing the economic system, the currency system. These allotments, energy credit allotments, will not function in such a way that you can buy anything which you can call your own. Mm-hmm. And at first sight, this might seem rather arbitrary. Why choose energy credits? But my understanding is that the justification for this is the idea of non-renewable resources, such as oil, gas, coal, these these sorts of things, which, according to the original theory, those particular commodities represented um, an overall increase in the entropy of the system. So this was a, a thermodynamic justification for this system. So you needed to bring all of that under strict control so the thermodynamic system didn't um, go on to chaos. That was the justification. So things like oil, gas, coal, you were trying to control the use of those for the good of the whole society. Um, Now, Patrick Wood says that there's possibly coming a, a modern manifestation of this concept with the idea of the carbon currency which again connects to the idea of um, saving yes. resources and, of course, the anthropogenic global warming theory so as not to produce too much carbon dioxide, all these kinds of thoughts. Do you agree with with Patrick Wood's idea here that there may be a carbon currency, a global carbon currency in the offing? Yes, I, I totally agree with uh, Patrick Wood and his thesis in regards to the imposition of carbon currency. And you have to know that carbon is only a euphemism for energy. And if you use the term carbon currency, you could also use energy currency or energy units. These terms are synonymous. Mm. However, in some ways, the carbon currency has already been introduced. So we are not speaking in regards to what could happen in the future, but we also can look back into what has already happened in regards to the imposition of carbon currency It has not been introduced among the general public. That is correct. But there were trial projects going on even in the late 70s, 80s, and the 90s. Different segments of society, even in England, were asked to use energy credits to buy their gas at the pump station. I can send you an article which appeared in the Daily Telegraph with a picture of an older lady she has what seems to be a credit card in her hand, and she's paying for her gas at the pump station. But what looks to be a credit card is not a credit card at all. It is a card which has energy credits stored on it, and she uses that as a means of payment. But these were only trial projects, and they have not yet been introduced or established in, in, in a general society in the Western world today. However, we have something like cap and trade here in the United States. And basically, this is a functioning system where the basic idea is carbon currency. It functions between different companies, especially energy producing companies. They have certain regulations in regards to 
the emission of CO2 gas, and they cannot exceed that particular quota. And in order to emit more CO2 gas into the atmosphere, they have to trade mm. certain carbon credits from other companies who may not use up all their allotted credits. That's a system which is already in place. And thus, ultimately, it will also be introduced in the general public and everyone will have to use these carbon credits or the carbon currency as a means of payment. And do you envision this coming about as a gradual process? Because to my mind, I find that that very difficult to imagine how that could happen incrementally. But we live in a world which is, well, it seems to be economically on the edge of the precipice. And I'm just wondering whether you agree that if the economic system around us were to collapse in a very dramatic way, that maybe this would be the right moment as far as the technocrats of the new world order to uh, bring in such a system yeah it cannot be opposed from one day to the next it has to be a process this was the reason why we looked back into the history of it all if if we think that technology started in the year let's say 1825 when saucy Moore wrote his book new christianity or even earlier at the turn of a century from the 18th to the 19th century if this was the starting point of technocracy, then we can look back to a 200-year history of, of that particular movement. And what really held the technocrats back was the lack of appropriate technology. This was really the, the big impediment for the earlier technocrats to implement their system. Mm. However, modern-day technocrats think they have the technology at the disposal now. Obviously, it's computer technology, dig digital uh, technology, and the smart meters, the smart grid, all of that will be at their disposal. And they think this is the technology which will ultimately be able to implement technocracy as it was thought out to be. And so do you feel that they think that this system will gradually take over, that it will make the price-based economy gradually superfluous? Yes, it, it all depends on the installation of smart meters because smart meters mm. are the most important component to set up the so-called smart grid in one particular country. And when obviously they want to link all the national smart grids to set up or establish a global smart grid system. But everything depends on the installation of smart meters. And this is what is happening today in certain parts of the United States, in Canada, in England, in Germany, and different other countries of the European Union. I just read an article in regards to the installation of smart meters in Italy, and that article told me that 80% of all the households in Italy are already outfitted with a smart meter. And I think at the end of this year, 2013, they will accomplish the project to install smart meters in every household in Italy. So this is, this is really the process which is going on. This is the necessary preparation in regards to set up a smart grid system globally, ultimately. And then obviously once the smart grid is in place, the next step will be the political imposition of technocracy because then the technology is available to make technocracy work. 
Indeed. And from what I've read, the little that I've read about the smart grid, the very essence of it seems to be technocratic because it seems to be moving in the direction of allocation rather than one buying energy. In essence, its philosophy is already technocratic. And I, I must admit, I would very much like to talk to you about this, but we are running out of time. I'm wondering whether, Dr. Edmund, you would be agreeable to coming back to speak about this smart grid in more detail. Sure, I would be glad to. I think perhaps we should do it that way. May I say thank you ever so much for spending all this time with us again. Um, just before we break off the conversation, could you please just remind people again of where they can find out more about your work? You're, you have a couple of websites. Yes, I have a German website and I also have an English website. And obviously the English website would be more relevant to your listeners. It's at the auraria.us web address, auraria.us and I believe you can just uh, give the link on your website, and this would spare me the the effort of of actually spelling it out. <laughs> yes, I'll I'll do that gladly. Yes. Yeah, so once again, thanks ever so much for speaking to us again, and I look forward to speaking to you again about the subject of the smart grid and how this um, is effectively going to be an implementation of technocracy. So thank you ever so much for speaking to us. You're welcome. <laughs> 